0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to PM. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yugara people in Brisbane. Tonight, after convincing allies to supply advanced tanks, Ukraine's next target is F-16 fighter jets. Also, Novak Djokovic's dad to watch the tennis from his hotel, as he's linked to overt support for Russia. Ukrainian Australians are left reeling.
2: The unfurling of the Russian flag yesterday with uh, Djokovic senior's participation. If I was there with my little girl, I would not feel safe. That is not an environment that I would want to be in, and I'm just very disappointed that actually something like that occurred on Australian soil.
1: And a training program aims to solve the rural GP crisis, but there are other ideas to get doctors to the bush.
3: You know, state and federal governments look for really big, you know, shiny things that can be opened, whereas a lot of what rural communities need is just very minor practical support. Things like doctor's housing and nurse's housing, very simple things, uh, make an enormous difference in rural and remote communities.
1: Ukraine says it'll now push for the supply of F-16 fighter jets from its Western allies as countries increase military aid to the country. Russia continues to kill many in missile and drone attacks. The United States and European nations are now committed to sending top-line battle tanks to Ukraine in coming months. But with experts expecting the war to last long into the future... Ukrainian officials believe more aircraft will be crucial to their military campaign. David Sparks reports.
0: Standing next to the rubble that used to be her home near Kiev, 67-year-old Helena Panacean says she's lost everything.
4: This is such a tragedy for me. I'm telling you, I'm left without anything. What else can I say? This is such a disaster. I'm struggling so much. How could they?
0: Russia fired missiles and self-exploding drones at nearly a dozen Ukrainian provinces. The barrage came after Germany and the United States promised to send high-tech battle tanks to Ukraine. Germany's also given the green light for tanks it's manufactured and exported to its allies to be donated. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the latest Russian onslaught proves his country needs more weapons. Every
5: Russian missile against our cities, every Iranian drone, which the terrorists use,
0: is an argument for why more weapons are needed. Only weapons neutralise terrorists. Now that more tanks have been committed, Ukraine has set its sights on the sky. Olekskiy Reznikov is an advisor to the country's defence minister. He told Reuters the next big hurdle now is to get fighter jets from the US and NATO. Ukraine has a fleet of ageing Soviet-era fighter jets more than 30 years old. What it wants is the US-made f 16 Peter Layton is a security expert at Griffith University and has previously worked at the Pentagon. He says Ukraine's request for F-16s has merit.
6: It's one of those questions that depends how long the war lasts, and the war has been going a lot longer than anybody thought that it would. So I think it's probably a sensible uh, question. Bear in mind that uh, European air forces are disposing of their of the F-16s at the present time and are transitioning onto, onto the f 35 So a number of European air forces have F-16s up, which are free and available, if you like. Uh, And in particular, people people are are talking about the Royal Netherlands Air Force that has 40 F-16s that they could pass to the Ukraine relatively quickly.
0: How much of a difference would it make to Ukraine if it did get F-16s? Oh,
6: that's 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 another question. Um, At the moment, it wouldn't seem to be all that much because the F-16s that, that are rolling around Europe are relatively elderly. So these are not current state-of-the-art. On the other hand, the, the, uh, the, the Russian Air Force has some shortcomings as well. So if they're using them for that air defence purposes, they'll be stepping back from the from the front line a bit. So, so if you like, sitting outside the surface square missile defences of the uh, Russians and they'll be intercepting any manned aircraft penetrating through that surface square missile belt. So um, they'd be be just fine for that. They have sidewinder missiles, and they have uh, what's called the AMRAAM, which is a a radar-guided long-range air-to-air missile. Uh, Now, that would give them a good capability relatively quickly, Um, and that would would be worthwhile getting from the the Ukraine point of view. If we step back a second from that air-to-air kind of world there um, into the air-to-ground world... um, That's a lot more difficult because the weapons that the F-16s have, uh, the Europeans have, are relatively basic and you have to uh, penetrate into the uh, defence areas. So that that would be a bit more difficult.
0: As for the tanks being committed, defence expert Professor Clive Williams from the Australian National University says they'll make a difference, but the question is when?
3: I don't think it'll actually make a great deal of difference for some considerable time because uh, the actual training time on a modern Western tank is probably around about six months. So uh, it's not like what Ukraine had previously, which is Soviet old Soviet equipment, which was pretty basic and uh, and easy to operate. But uh, Western equipment particularly main battle tanks are so very sophisticated pieces of equipment then there are other issues as well of course is uh, you know getting them to the battlefield um, the actual mobility issues with the fuel and so on you know like the abrams uh, they use special fuel which has to be provided alternatively you know that's a jet fuel jp8 nobody else uses that stuff and uh, that if they're providing american tanks that's going to be an added problem
0: apart from the us and germany tanks have also been committed by canada poland britain finland and norway while other countries including france spain and the netherlands are considering sending tanks
1: david sparks reporting and the tensions over russia's invasion of ukraine are again boiling over at the australian open in melbourne After being filmed standing beside Putin's supporters, Novak Djokovic's father, Serjan, says he won't attend his son's semi-final match tonight, but will instead watch from home. He says he had no intention of causing such headlines or disruption and only wishes for peace. His statement comes after Ukraine's ambassador to Australia called for Djokovic Sr. to be banned for the rest of the tournament. Samantha Donovan prepared
2: this report.
7: In a video posted to YouTube by a Putin supporter, Novak Djokovic's father, Serjan, can be seen standing beside men holding Russian flags at the tournament on Wednesday night. Some are wearing clothing with a Z on it, a symbol of support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In subtitles on the video, the Russian speaker says he's sending a message to his brothers in Moscow. Djokovic Sr. is then quoted as saying in Serbian, long live the the Russians, before walking off. Katerina Argeru is the co-chair of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations.
2: Uh, To be honest, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was quite shocking. If I was there with my little girl, I would not feel safe. Um, That is not an environment that I would want to be in, and I'm just very disappointed that actually something like that occurred on Australian soil.
7: Late this afternoon, Serjan Djokovic released a written statement saying, I'm here to support my son only. I had no intention of causing such headlines or disruption. I was outside with Novak's fans, as I've done after all my son's matches, to celebrate his wins and take pictures with them. I had no intention of being caught up in this. My family has lived through the horror of war and we wish only for peace. So there is no disruption to tonight's semi-final for my son or for the other player I have chosen to to watch from home. I wish for a great match and I will be cheering for my son, as always. Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, Vasyl Moroshnichenko, is calling for Tennis Australia to ban Mr Djokovic Sr. from the rest of the tournament. Uh,
3: But this is, of course, up to Tennis Australia to decide. Also, it's important to ask Novak Djokovic about his opinion on the situation, because it's now up to to Novak to, to actually provide comments on that.
7: Novak Djokovic has declined to comment on his father's actions. The ambassador says the tennis star needs to clarify his position on the war in Ukraine.
3: Look, I want an apology from Novak Djokovic to be frank. I think this is, this is an apology that I would like to, to get and everybody will.
7: The opposition leader Peter Dutton told Channel 9 he's also concerned by Serjan Djokovic's apparent support for Putin and his invasion of Ukraine.
0: Frankly, everybody of goodwill should be trying to deter, not encourage, President Putin, so uh, it's a bizarre act, um, but it's an issue for, for Tennis Australia as to how they react.
7: The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was in the Victorian city of Bendigo today to inspect Bushmaster armoured vehicles being built there for Ukraine, but he refused to give his opinion on whether Djokovic Sr. should be banned from the Australian Open. Australia stands with the people of Ukraine. That's Australia's position. And uh, Australia is unequivocal
3: in our support for the rule of international law. And we don't want to see any support given uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine that is having a devastating impact on the people of Ukraine.
7: Daryl Adair is an associate professor of sport management at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's not convinced Tennis Australia should ban Serjan Djokovic from the rest of the tournament
0: got to remember uh, what uh, Novak Djokovic went through last year, which is uh, is a situation we don't want repeated in terms of reputational damage. Um, And uh, Djokovic is in in imperious form and uh, looks uh, likely to stroll uh, into victory. Now, can you imagine a scenario where his father has been told uh, based upon a brief exchange that we're not particularly l- yet clear about that his father was uh, unwelcome at the uh, at the match and indeed at the uh, at the ceremony which we expect uh, uh, Novak uh, uh, to hold the trophy.
1: Daryl Adair from the University of Technology Sydney, Samantha Donovan reporting there. This is PM, I'm Rachel Mealy. Ahead, the consumer watchdog investigates more than 100 influencers for dodgy advertising on social media.
2: I think a lot of the time, you know, when you're talking on social media and they don't really know you as a person, then they're kind of going to believe whatever you say.
1: With much of regional and rural Australia facing a shortage of doctors, the federal government hopes a new training model will help lure GP registrars to the bush. A Tasmania-wide program will allow GP registrars in rural medicine to be employed by the state instead of the Commonwealth, to make general practice a more attractive career. Some medical groups say it's a good first step to addressing the crisis, while others say rural communities' calls for quick, simple solutions continue to be ignored. Gavin Coote reports.
5: Whether it's in the city or the bush, communities are crying out for GPs, and some are putting up cash and housing incentives to boost their appeal.
3: Yeah, it's a potential million dollars. We went out for advice on what is, you know, required these days to attract a good GP to a regional area.
5: Peter Smith is the president of the Querading Shire, just two hours east of Perth in the WA Wheatbelt. The current GP is set to leave town in March and the local council, desperate to find a replacement, is offering an annual salary package of up to a million dollars along with a four-bedroom house.
3: The shire provides and maintains a fully stocked working clinic and practice or practice area and also housing and the Shire provides a cash injection as well.
5: What would it mean for the town if you weren't able to fill that position by March?
3: Well, look, I guess uh, the knock-on effect of that is uh, a question of the viability of the hospital without a doctor in town. The pharmacy certainly would uh, have, a, have an impact. Our elder, elderly people would be required to travel for uh, their medical services.
5: The Albanese government wants to make general practice more attractive and will begin trialling a model in Tasmania, which it's hoping will help ease the shortage. Alongside the Premier Jeremy Rockliffe... The Health Minister Mark Butler today announced a statewide single employer model aimed at ensuring GP registrars won't have to forego their entitlements if they move to a new job. Now, as a medical graduate, you have to take a choice between either working in the hospital system or choosing to work in the Commonwealth Medicare system. You haven't been able to do both. And that's meant for a young GP registrar uh, who might be doing four or five years of postgraduate training, you might end up working for five, six, different employers in that short period of time. You don't accrue leave entitlements. It makes it hard to plan a family in spite of being at that childbearing age. You don't have the same wages and entitlements that that your equivalents who are working in the hospital system has. And it just doesn't make general practice attractive. The model has been trialled on a much smaller scale in the Murrumbidgee region of New South Wales and the South Australian Riverland. Dr Tim Jackson, the chair of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, Tasmania, says he hopes it will lure more medical professionals from the mainland.
6: Currently, we've got 99 uh, positions advertised for GPs in the state. So this is a start to uh, help the workforce shortage. And I think it's going to see an immediate uh, improvement with these up to 20 registrars being rolled out across country Tasmania.
5: A damning New South Wales rural health inquiry last year also called for the expansion of a single employer model for GP trainees, and the federal government now wants to see it implemented in all states and territories, but not everyone in the sector agrees with
3: that approach. Will the the single employer model solve the problem we have? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think that's fairly unrealistic.
5: Mark Burdack is the Chief Executive Officer of the Healthy Communities Foundation Australia, a charity that runs health services in rural and remote areas.
3: Over the last 20 years, we've seen the number of medical graduates go from going into general practice from a high of around 40% to um, this year less than 13%. So the issue isn't about a single employer model and your entitlements. The, the issue is how did, how did we get to a situation where so many graduates once wanted to be general practitioners and now don't?
5: Mark Burdak thinks while it shouldn't be up to regional councils to stump up cash to solve the crisis, their solutions are likely to be much more receptive to local needs.
3: You know, state and federal governments look for really big, you know, shiny things that can be opened, whereas a lot of what rural communities need is just very minor practical support to get facilities built. Things like doctor's housing and nurse's housing, very simple things, uh, make an enormous difference in rural and remote communities. But for state and federal governments that only talk to city-based advisers, they don't hear that message.
1: That's Mark Burdak from the Healthy Communities Foundation Australia, Gavin Coote reporting. University students are well rehearsed in juggling work with study all while being thrifty. But they say the escalating cost of living and housing is forcing some students to drop out and others are facing homelessness. A group of universities is now calling on the federal government to help ease the pressure. Isabel Massali reports.
4: Brisbane-based uni student Bella is juggling full-time work along with her law and arts degree. She had to leave home to study and getting a helping hand isn't an option.
7: My parents um, obviously can't financially support me. On paper, they look like they earn a lot of money, but a lot of it goes on on medical costs. Um, So it's, yeah, I've had to sort of support myself and even at times support them. So it's been pretty pretty difficult. Unless you're, like, working full-time, you can't really, like, move and survive. So I think university is becoming more and more like of an elitist sort of institution.
4: And these types of stories are becoming increasingly common. Dylan Bodica is the WA President of the National Union of Students. At his university, charity initiatives like food donations began at the start of the pandemic, but they've continued amid demand from students facing cost of living pressures.
5: We have seen, um, particularly for regional, remote um, and international students, that there is a Real struggle to find anywhere to live um, that they can afford, which is leading to a lot of students concerned that they will be made homeless. We're also dealing with um, people unable to afford basic needs like food, which is leading a lot of students to think about leaving university.
4: It's prompted a call from the Australian Technology Network of Universities for cost of living assistance. It represents six universities across Australia and made the recommendation in its pre-budget submission to the federal government, among other recommendations to shape the future of the university sector. Executive Director Luke Sheehy. It
8: is you know, increasingly difficult to access rental accommodation. The price of everything is going up with high inflation, so students need more support while they're studying, and that includes income support. We're calling on the government to look at how they better Design policies to support our students.
4: He says he's particularly concerned about students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, Indigenous students, and those from remote and regional Australia because they have a higher attrition rate.
8: We want to make sure that students not only get to university but they finish their qualifications so they can make a positive contribution. We know that if you if you get a university qualification, it not only transforms your life, it transforms the lives of your family and your community. So if we can get more students from regional Australia, more Indigenous students into university and finishing university, and of course, more students from poorer backgrounds finishing university, that's gonna transform not only their lives, but the lives of people around them. And, and it's good for the whole of Australia.
4: Philip Della is WA's former Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer and the former head of nursing at Curtin University. He says some states have introduced ways to ease the burden, like financial contributions towards clinical placements, but he believes it needs to go further. One of the things we know is that Australia needs to increase the amount of students going through universities, especially in the professions. When they struggle, especially in a course that leads to registration as a health profession, it extends their course. It may uh, also affect their ability to remain in the course. All of this continually adds up and puts burden and stress on our students. Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth says youth allowance is one payment students can access to help support them. And quote, earlier this month, recipients saw the largest indexation increase to their payments since it began in 1998. She went on to say a committee is reviewing the adequacy of income support payments ahead of the federal budget, including youth allowance. Isabel Musali reporting.
1: The Federal and Northern Territory responses to chronic spikes in crime, alcohol damage and dysfunction in Alice Springs are being noticed by other parts of the Northern Territory suffering the same problems. Communities in Catherine and Tennant Creek fear the problems will shift elsewhere if tougher alcohol restrictions and police responses are not applied uniformly across the Territory. Jane Barden reports.
9: As the NT Chief Minister Natasha Files says, the Prime Minister dropped everything to respond to Alice Springs' crime crisis. The importance to the Prime Minister of Alice Springs was shown when he completely rearranged a hectic schedule. She's brought in three months of tougher restrictions on alcohol sales in Alice Springs after the federal government committed to spend more on social programs and police. But other NT regional centres, which also have escalating crime, are asking, what about us? Catherine Mayor Liz
4: Clark. We have had a huge crime spike in these last few months. We had our first ram raid here and also this uh, vehicle trying to ram into police
9: cars. The same behaviour by youths in stolen cars in Alice Springs triggered the calls for a federal response, while Alice Springs has suffered a 56% increase in break-ins and a doubling of domestic violence since last year. Catherine has had a 134% increase in break-ins and a 143% increase in sexual assaults. Liz Clark fears if alcohol restrictions in Alice Springs are not harmonised, the problems will just shift.
4: We need that same kind of restriction across the Territory not just in Alice Springs. And we need the right model applied to defuse the crime cause because we need to address the key issues of addiction to alcohol, youth crime and domestic violence. It's not just a matter of just closing
9: the bottle shops. Catherine's local country Liberals MP, Joe Hersey. When I talk to police, I talk about, uh, you know, community policing, uh, walking around the main street and just being a bit more visual and the answer I always get back is if they had more police they would be able to do that. The rates of domestic violence here in town are just horrendous so obviously we would love to see more police. South of Alice in Tennant Creek, John Fitz from the Do traditional owner group also feels escalating crime in his town has been ignored.
6: Tennant Creek, uh, you know, we'd be left out again you know, we want to actually talk to the government when is it our turn or when are they coming here?
9: Although Tennant Creek currently has the NT's toughest alcohol restrictions. He wants them boosted to match those in Alice Springs.
6: You know, make it tougher, I think, yeah. And not, not three months ban, 12
9: months ban, you know. Tennant Creek Warramungu traditional owner and Tarn Camp resident Valder Shannon also feels bypassed. I live it. I breathe it. And we are frustrated with the way things are going without us being included
8: to say what should be happening to deal with these issues.
9: The NT Chief Minister, Natasha Files, says her government is focusing resources on combating crime and dysfunction across the NT. This is an area that we've focused
4: on, whether it's in Tennant Creek and the Barclay, whether it's the Catherine and Big Rivers region or out to Nullumboy. There's been working in Catherine. Police have had an operation that they have been targeting to provide support to the Catherine community.
9: She's again appealing to the federal government to give the NT a bigger chunk of funding for things like homelessness and domestic violence services even though the NT already gets a higher GST loading because of its 30% Indigenous population. The Northern Territory is not fairly funded. The cost to deliver healthcare and education in NUCA is far more than Newcastle. In Alice Springs, the chair of the Central Australian Youth Justice Network, Kirsten Wilson, says... Despite a week in the national spotlight, communities across the territory are worried the focus on tackling crime and disadvantage won't last. So looking at the housing crisis that we're experiencing, the extreme overcrowding, the generational poverty. So until we start to respond to that and address that, all we're going to do is continue to see band-aid responses that don't truly address the need within the community.
1: Kirsten Wilson from the Central Australian Youth Justice Network speaking there to Jane Barden. Just a week after announcing a crackdown on misleading testimonials and hidden ads on social media, the consumer watchdog has announced it's investigating more than 100 social media influencers over alleged dodgy endorsements. But in a world where the lines between opinion and marketing can be blurry, one advertising expert says it's a tough area to police, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports.
10: Stop everything you're doing because we're going to open this package together.
4: Okay, whoa! Hey guys, it's Ben the Forest Foodie. I am um, just wanted to share with you a little package that I got in the post.
10: With hashtags like gifted, paid partnership or brand partner, social media influencers will share products they're either paid to market or receive for free in hopes of an endorsement.
2: By them gifting me clothing, I'm pretty much doing their reels or videos for them to use.
10: Mother of two, Hayley Carson, has about 7,500 followers on her Instagram page. In the influencer world, she's a small player. It's a hobby she hopes turns into a profitable business.
2: I definitely get gifted some of the clothes I wear. Um, And then I'll, like, reuse
10: them for, like, photos of my own and tag the brands. On her page, Hayley Carson sprukes things like clothes, food brands, makeup and beauty products. For now, she's not paid to do this, but she receives gifts all the time. Then comes the question of whether she wants to promote the products she's sent for free.
2: And I have had a few circumstances where I'm not happy with the product. So I've, like, contacted the brand and been... Honest, but in a really polite way, just saying, look, I'm sorry, I'm not loving it. I'm happy to send it back or just I can keep it, whatever. Um, but I've not gone ahead and promoted it on my page.
10: She says she makes sure she's clear when an item she's promoting is a gift. But not everyone in her position is as honest.
1: The Jumping around, giving lifestyle tips and talking about
10: fashion and things that all of us want to hear, but actually that it's a paid promotion. Gina cascott Lieb is the chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. This week, the ACCC launched a sweep of social media advertising and marketing practices in an attempt to crack down on misleading testimonials and endorsements. It's already received dozens of complaints and begun looking into the conduct of more than 100 social media influencers.
1: We're worried about testimonials that are misleading and, for instance, that they omit an important detail about the product or a condition about the purchase. We also are well aware people follow influencers because they're relatable, accessible, they seem to be
10: genuine and living just like you and me, but frequently they are in business. With more and more of us shopping online, the ACCC is trying to ensure brands that advertise on social media and the influencers they work with are compliant with consumer laws.
6: If we're going to look to influencers to make purchase decisions, we need to make sure, and certainly Triple you know, C would need to make sure that what they're conveying is accurate and correct.
10: Professor Gary Mortimer is an expert in marketing and consumer behaviour at the Queensland University of Technology. He says it's an incredibly tough area to try and regulate.
6: When we're dealing with potentially thousands, if not tens of thousands of influencers, uh, possibly hundreds of thousands of tips, it becomes a much more resource-intensive Exercise to facilitate, and then of course is what is the differentiation? How do we define an influencer? Is it someone just simply putting on Facebook that they uh, particularly liked a product and it works well for them, or is it you know based on numbers—three hundred followers, five thousand followers, or a hundred
3: thousand followers?
10: Hayley Carson says while she wouldn't promote a product she didn't actually enjoy using herself, she has little doubt there are influencers out there just in it for the money.
2: I think a lot of the time, you know, when you're talking on social media and they don't really know you as a person, then they're kind of going to believe whatever you say. Like, I'm sure there's, you know, people out there that have, like, massive, massive followings that will just promote anything if they're being paid for it.
10: But regardless of ethics, she's trying to build a business based on the audience that follows her, and she doesn't want to risk losing their trust.
2: It it always comes down to honesty is the best policy. You don't want to go ahead and promote something in that one-off chance that you could get caught out. Like, to me, it's just not worth the risk.
1: Influencer Hayley Carson ending Bridget Fitzgerald's report. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Kem White and Nick Dan. I'm Rachel Mealy. David Lipson will return to the PM chair on Monday evening. Thanks for listening. Make us one of your favourites on the ABC Listen app where you can listen to us live or later. And that's where you'll find This Week with Melissa Clark. This Week is also on radio tomorrow morning. Good night.
10: Hey, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. It can write poems, essays, and even talk to you. That's why ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence bot, is being banned in schools and unis. Today, AI expert Toby Walsh on how the cutting edge technology is already changing our lives. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.
5: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.